0: This affects everyone. This is why the story has gotten so much international attention, whether or not people understand why. It's because how China treats Hong Kong is sort of an indication of how they're going to treat the rest of the world. It was really bad. I got like, I have a few photos on Instagram that have over a thousand thousand comments. And it's all people like telling me my mother should die and that I'm a prostitute. (laughs) You know, already you feel quite alone when, when you're trying to do something different, but I think you're right, like, when you try to do something different in Asia, you feel especially alone. And, you know, one thing that they talk about in that geo is, is uh, the importance of having not necessarily not necessarily role models, but peer models. You know, people who are friends, who inspire you, and, and Hannah is definitely one of all of the
1: explorers for me are, are, are peer models. That was Laurel Chore. And this is The Wildcast. Welcome to Episode 9 of The Wildcast. And today I talk to Laurel Chor, an amazing journalist and fellow not-geo explorer about her home, Hong Kong, and what the new security laws being imposed by China will mean for their city-state. We also chat about being on the front lines covering the protests in Hong Kong over the last year, braving tear gas, bricks, and rubber bullets. Her work has come out in the New York Times, The Guardian, Vice News, and many other international publications. We chat about her life in Hong Kong, becoming a Nat Geo explorer, and so much more. Here is her story.
0: This is cool. Never been in this.
1: Yeah, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you? I'm in quarantine, so.
1: Well, like the rest of the world, we're all in quarantine at the moment. True, we're- but. Um, still, sort of in a lockdown of some kind.
0: Yeah, that's true. I'm under legal quarantine though, because I just came back to Hong Kong, so I have a tracking bracelet.
1: <laughs> oh wow! Wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. I can't leave the house at all. Not even to do groceries.
1: Really? Do they mm. do they bring food, or how does that work?
0: I don't know how they do it if you live alone. I don't know, but I live with my mom, so it's been fine. But yeah, Um, they like call me to check on me. The government and I'm wearing a tracking bracelet, and there's an app and everything. So, wow, like
1: serious business.
0: Yep, not messing around.
1: (laughs) And you were in you were in Europe for, like, from the start of this whole thing, right? You were stuck. You got stuck in Europe, or well.
0: Yeah, it was a bit of a choice. I I mean, it's funny because for us this epidemic's been going on since January, right? So, um but yeah, I was traveling in Europe for work and then I went to visit my boyfriend in France and then I just decided to stay cuz everything was canceled anyway, so might as well, right?
1: Right, right. I mean, yeah. It's just as bad as any other place, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Well, France is like number 5 it's in the, in the prop, world. Yeah, yeah for sure. Like but um I mean, we were in the we were in the countryside and you know, we're long distance, so it was like what better chance for us to spend time together. So it yeah. worked out for me. I was really lucky.
1: And they were on they were on lockdown as well, right, while you were there.
0: Yeah. Uh it's uh over there, if you leave the house, you have to fill in a form. And you like even just to exercise, you have to stay within a kilometer of your house and only up to an hour and only by yourself.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here, where we are, we're still not allowed to exercise outdoors. So uh, other parts of the Philippines, they are. But uh, <laughs> oh. where we are at the moment, not yet.
0: But aren't you so... somewhere pretty, like, remote?
1: Um, yeah, we live in the mountains, but I live in sort of the city part of the mountains. I mean, there's a mountain right behind my house, which I normally run to, but to get there, I have to cross. Oh, it must be
0: so tough for you.
1: Yeah, it's hard. I I mean, I've been stuck at home for three months and my trainer has gotten the most use.
0: Yeah, good thing thing you have one, like a treadmill or an elliptical?
1: Um, it's a bike trainer, so I just attach my bike to it. And, oh nice. And there's a nice there's a nice app now. There's a nice app I've been using for years now. It's called Zwift. So you can you hmm. can basically ride with other people and race with other people. Oh wow. And funny because I've been using it for about three years. And normally there's maybe twenty people online at the same time as you are and now with this whole lockdown sometimes there's like 20,000 people
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god be hard to beat that race
1: yeah yeah now I come in like 200th or something like that
0: well out of 2,000 that's not bad yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah so how how's life been in Hong Kong so far you've been home for what 10 days or
0: yeah well I haven't left the house so I don't know (laughs) Um, But so far, quarantine's been fine. But I haven't been outside, so... <laughs> I don't yeah. know what life is like out there.
1: Right. But Hong Kong's sort of had a difficult year. I mean, the last 2019, 2020, it's, it's been somewhat the difficult year for Hong Kong with all the... Yeah, it's been a really ride.
0: rough <laughs> year. we super and rough year.
1: It's been bad for businesses. It's been ba- bad for practically everybody. I mean, I have friends... Who do events in Hong Kong and they've had to cancel events. And this is even pre pre COVID 19. So,
0: yeah, for sure. Ironically, um, the economy took its worst hit when Beijing made its announcement earlier this week. So,
1: by the economy, do you mean the stock market or?
0: Yeah, the stock market. Which Hong Kong, being a financial hub, affects everything.
1: For sure. I mean, it's going to have ripples all over Southeast Asia and probably whoever has investments in Hong Kong. You know? It's, a, it's, a, money, it's like a money laundering haven. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: yep, yep, yep.
1: And so what have you been busy with in the last few months? I know you, you left Vice. You used to work for Vice uh, yeah. for some time. And then you went... On your own, I suppose.
0: Yeah, so I worked for Vice as a producer for Vice News Tonight on HBO for two years. And then I went freelance almost a year and a half ago, just over a year ago. Um, and I've been on my own since. I mean, last year I was kept pretty busy by the protests. And then this year was starting off pretty busy, but then COVID 19 happened. Um, so it took basically a few months off just fine same as everyone else same as any freelancer right um right. Did, did do some work while I was in France which I'm grateful for but then I came back and Hong Kong is not under lockdown so as soon as I'm out of quarantine I'll be back to work especially with the protests kicking off
1: and these protests like now even with covid-19 it's a little more difficult isn't it to to bring people together and I mean, big groups are are discouraged, essentially, and protests are big groups, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. There's social distancing measures. I mean, I think, you know, with the epidemic, which for us started in January, um, with that and social distancing measures and with the number of arrests made, the, the protest movement definitely lost momentum for a little bit but i think with the news coming out over the last week for the last few weeks really um what we're seeing today is that the protests are probably gonna be coming back pretty strongly um i mean today there's been water cannons into your gas and and pepper bullets and all that so it's starting up again um despite social distancing measures, in theory, well, the government has banned public gatherings of more than eight people. Um, But other than that, you know, restaurants are open, bars are open, gyms are open, schools are starting to open up again, even though there's not much school left. Um, But in Hong Kong, I mean, it definitely, the protests definitely slowed down because of the virus. But we also don't really have that many cases. So people aren't, as they aren't worried, scared, yeah. I mean, we're certainly cautious, but you know, in a protest, it's not like you touch people anyway. You're already you're fully masked up anyway.
1: That's true, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the protest, everybody's in a mask, and and Hong Kong has these anti-mask laws, right? Because of the protests.
0: Yeah, I mean, that didn't really hold up. They never really worked out. Um, people started wearing masks. I mean, I was reading a few studies by february march april there was like 99 percent mask coverage in the population that's that was completely voluntary
1: really 99 percent. that's really
0: well um it was like 70 something percent in january and then february march april it was like you know depending on our sample like 96 percent and up so you know pretty much everyone
1: wow Uh, something and um you know, a, a lot of the people who probably listen to my podcast don't really know the background of the protests in Hong Kong. Maybe you can explain what totally. the reason for all the protests are and how they started last year in 2019. Yeah. it's mean, such a I, long, Filip-
0: complicated story. <laughs> it is yeah, even for, for local Filipinos people
1: sort of used to to protests. I mean, we <laughs> we did have you know the EDSA revolution many many years ago, but but now with you know with our current government, there's there's sort of been a, I would say vilification against activists and and those that sort of action in in a way, and sort of our government currently is a bit more right wing and yeah. leaning towards China, just like yours over there so so maybe you could explain how how this whole thing uh started
0: yeah, um so basically to give background information. Hong Kong is a former British colony. We were a colony until 1997, so not that long ago. Um, And in 1997, the city was handed back to Chinese rule. And when that happened, um, Hong Kong was promised that It would be able to live basically the way it has been for the next 50 years. So until 2047, we were supposed to be able to continue to have our own legislature, continue to have our own judicial system. Um, We have our own borders. We have our own currency. We have our own passports. We speak a different language from mainland China. And this was all supposed to continue until 2047. And Hong Kong, that's what's made Hong Kong very different.
1: We. Sorry, just to cut you there, you speak a different language, which is. Cantonese. So we
0: speak Cantonese, yeah. And in mainland China, the official language is Mandarin. Though of course, there's right. like hundreds of dialects. But for the most part, in mainland China, they speak Mandarin, we speak Cantonese. Um, we use traditional Chinese characters when we write. Uh, on the other side, they use simplified. All this just to really. Um, convey how different Hong Kong is culturally, historically. Um, and so we, no one knew what was going to happen in 24 2047, 2047, but we knew at least we could count until then for things to sort of remain the same. But unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. And over the last few years, we've seen more and more um, erosion of Hong Kong's rights and freedoms and autonomy. Um, and this whole system that under which Hong Kong is able to function differently while being under Chinese rule is called one country, two systems. And you'll hear that phrase a lot being thrown around. Um, and so it's supposed to be, you know, one country under China, we have two different systems, and that's Hong Kong. And that actually also incorporates Macau, but Macau doesn't have any protests unlike us. So under that background, with that background, Hong Kong, unfortunately has been losing lots of, um, you know, there's just been a lot of worrying events in terms of freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, um, Hong Kong's autonomy. And, Last year, those fears kind of exploded when the government here tried to pass an extradition law. So Hong Kong actually doesn't have an extradition treaty with uh, mainland China.
1: Okay. So if, if you're a criminal in Hong Kong, you get tried in Hong Kong, essentially. that's
0: Well, let's say if, if you're wanted for a crime in mainland China or Taiwan, um, Hong Kong does not have a treaty with those places, so they couldn't send you back in order to be tried there. You would just basically be like a fugitive, and Hong Kong would have no jurisdiction to arrest you or try you. Um, So long story short, there was a murder case. This man, this young man, murdered his pregnant girlfriend in Taiwan and fled back to Hong Kong. And that's what sort of kicked off this whole thing where the leader of Hong Kong, this is a very detailed background story, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Um, ahead, So this murder happened and Hong Kong's leader decided that this is such a tragedy for the uh, woman's family. They can't seek justice. Uh, This man, should be tried for murder in Taiwan, but there's nothing we can do because we don't have an extradition treaty with Taiwan. And while we're at it to solve this problem, why don't we ha- you know, write, uh, have an extradition treaty with Taiwan and with, with mainland China, which is something that Beijing has wanted for a while because a lot of people flee mainland China for Hong Kong, including officials, perhaps you know, corrupt officials wanted by China. Um, so Hong Kong sort of a haven, or at least that's the way Beijing paints it, this haven for criminals in mainland China, and they wanted that to stop. Uh, so Carrie Lam, our chief executive of Hong Kong, who was sort of essentially appointed by China, she put forth this extradition bill. Everyone got really scared in Hong Kong because all of a sudden that means China could, in theory, say that they want anyone from Hong Kong Um, you know, charge them with a crime and then have them sent to mainland China where they would undergo trial. And that's terrifying. Like in China, the, the conviction rate is over 99%. And China is, of course. Yeah. So you don't really stand a chance. If if China comes up with a charge for you, you're basically going to jail and in a, and you're going to go through a criminal justice system that you can be very sure is not fair um and china of course has a long history of very major human rights abuses so that's just terrifying right china could come up with any reason to to get someone from hong kong and and, and that's a legal avenue when china's already shown a, you know if it really wants to kidnap someone they will kidnap someone they've kidnapped swedish citizens in thailand they have I saw
1: they kidnapped a bookseller was it a bookseller in hong kong or yeah, so that's
0: the guy, this publisher, he was a Swedish national, Chinese-born, but he's right. a Swedish national. He was had a few Hong Kong bookstores and, and uh, publishing companies that were known to publish books that criticize the Communist Party and Xi Jinping. And he was on a holiday in Thailand, disappeared and reappeared in China, basically, and has been in detention since. And I think it's been probably about two years now. And this guy that. Yeah, exactly. This guy's a Swedish national. Um, oh, and he was in Thailand. So that's right. the lens China is willing to go to, to grab someone. So give him an illegal avenue, God knows how many people <laughs> would be, you know, grabbed because of this. So anyway, so it, it made people super terrified. And it sort of brought to light or you know accelerated this fear that we had for 2047 to 2019 and there were all these protests um the government actually sent eventually back down a few months later from the law but by that time it was too late you know by that time there was so much police violence that people were so angry anyway you know by that time it was just like clearly i think protesters just felt like we, you know this shows that even if they back them from this law, the threat of China is there and people want democracy, etc. cetera. And so it, it became this huge mess and it continued for six months and it sort of calmed down for the first half of this year because of the virus and everything. But then recently so much has happened. Most notably, just this week, Beijing decided that it would unilaterally impose a law unto hong kong about national security and it would criminalize you know it's it's an anti it's a national security law so it covers secession sedition terrorism basically if you criticize or threaten the chinese government in any way then they could in theory charge you and arrest you and and that is the most terrifying thing that's happened so far. And, and people are calling it the death of Hong Kong. They're calling it the death of one country, two systems. And, and it's pretty scary. So that's why today there were all these protests and it's the worst protest we've seen probably this year.
1: This is scary for me because, I mean, our government here in the Philippines basically aping China, copying mm. the laws and copying... I mean, we we have the same trolls that China used. I remember last year during... During the whole protest, you and your fellow journalists in Hong Kong were being trolled, basically by Chinese trolls targeting—I mean, many of you—for uh, your work covering covering the protests, and and that's exactly the same thing that's happening here in the Philippines over the last three years now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is why this affects everyone this is why the story has gotten so much international attention whether or not people understand why it's because how china treats hong kong is sort of an in, in indication of how they're going to treat the rest of the world as china becomes more and more influential and powerful so i think everyone's everyone's scared about china right and and china it's it's not a great year for its image with the pandemic and now this um but hopefully people still pay attention to hong kong despite the pandemic though i know that's really difficult because everyone's going through their own struggle right now
1: yeah it's it's definitely something because um aside from the pandemic there's going to be this huge basically economic downturn for the entire entire world (laughs) and uh, you know, Hong Kong's already suffered over the last year. And then in, coming into 2020, 2021, it's even going to be probably even worse. I mean, I was looking at the numbers, and one of the reasons probably China's never really touched Hong Kong is it's been sort of this economic powerhouse on the edge of China. And that's basically your bargaining chip. And in within the last year, because of the protests, and then now with COVID-19 you're sort of losing that bargaining chip because you know the economy is probably going to tank like like everyone else and China's going to use it uh, as a reason to take over.
0: Well, yeah, I mean it's it's people always talk about the economic factor and Hong Kong's certainly less important than it used to be, you know. 20, 30 years ago, Hong Kong was still an international financial hub and China was really not all that important, right? So China is definitely emboldened by the fact that Hong Kong is not so essential anymore, relatively speaking, though it's still definitely essential. I mean, I'm not an economist, I'm, I really finance is not my forte, but I do understand that a lot of foreign capital still flows through. Hong Kong, and p- perhaps most importantly, Hong Kong is still the only place technically on Chinese soil where businesses can function very freely and openly and, and businesses feel the confidence to function here as opposed to mainland China, where it's quite difficult. So, I mean, I don't think, you know, economics plays that big of a role. It's very debatable, how important Hong Kong is debatable as in there's people on who, who think different things but at the end of the day I think it also shows just how much China is willing to sacrifice in order to maintain this image of being strong like they're willing clearly to lose Hong Kong and its status in order to appear as this big strong powerful country
1: that's that's definitely an interesting insight there and as looking at what, what was happening last year, the, the protests in Hong Kong are quite different from I would say, like for instance, protests here, where there's generally there's generally a, a leader or a leading organization that leads the protests and there's a like there's a person at the forefront of all of this. But the protests in Hong Kong have been like, you know, like a hydra. They've had many different leaders. It's it's very democratic. I think you go the protests are on Telegram. They vote on where to protest or um, mm-hmm. how, and all of these things. And how do you? How did they see all of this ending? I mean, how because of because of the multifaceted and like there's really no head to the organization who negotiates for the protesters. I mean, who? How does it work that they keep protesting and? who does the government negotiate with who does the well
0: the government hasn't actually met with any protesters so that's part of the problem they actually haven't had any dialogue and and the protesters honestly don't even want that at that point because the government is not listening i mean and i mean i think despite the leaderless nature of the protest despite the sort of crowd sourced methods of the protest the demands are very clear and that hasn't wavered one bit it's always been five demands and that's um let's see five demands is an independent investigation into the police which hasn't happened they want all rioting charges to be uh overturned which is difficult considering more than eight thousand people have been arrested since last year's protests and
1: those uh, people are still in Hong Kong or have they been have A lot
0: been of people have fled. So the extradition bill never passed, thankfully. Mm-hmm. So no one's been extradited to China, but I do know some people have fled to Taiwan or other places. Most of them are, are definitely in Hong Kong. Uh they want um let's see. Uh uh, they want universal suffrage, which will probably never happen. <laughs> and um, oh, they want the withdrawal of the bill. Forgot about that one because it did happen. Um, and they also want uh, all arrested people to be released which is definitely not going to happen either because, again, 8,000 people have been arrested. Not that many people have actually gone to jail yet considering the amount of charges made and, you know, just the fact that they have to get through the legal system. Yeah. Um, but that, those are the five demands. And, you know, even only one has, been, has happened and the other ones are quite far-fetched. So how this will end, honestly... Even if you asked a protester just about a year ago, I probably would have told you that they stood no hope. (laughs) They are coming up against the Chinese Communist Party after all. I think this can only end in a worse and worse crackdown and and Beijing announcing that they're going to pass the national security law is honestly worse than I think any of us could have imagined. So... (laughs) I don't know. It's It's a really scary time. And this news only came, you know, this, was, this is three-day-old news. Everyone's still just processing it and trying to
1: figure out what this means for Hong Kong. And as a journalist, this is going to impact your work quite significantly, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Um, for the first time ever, I'm wondering if I'll have to at least think about leaving Hong Kong permanently because... You know, if I work for foreign media, if I, you know, openly support democracy, which I'm, you know, happy to do, I, um, I support democracy. That's not something I'm, I'm shy about. And unfortunately, you know, as to, to a lot of places, that's a given, right? But in China, that's yeah. a political stance. Um, and so those things make me worry. Like I, you know, if, if the laws pass, it wouldn't be very hard to find an excuse to target me. I don't think um, whether You've already I'm. You've
1: been targeted last year, right? I saw on your Twitter feed you get trolled, and essentially you're, you're on yeah,
0: the Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how you know systematic and official. The ta- like, I don't know if I was really. I mean, I was certainly the subject of a lot of harassment that was definitely targeted because of the sheer volume but you know i don't know if that speaks more to the resources available to the chinese government to harass people and whether you know they were harassing everyone that much or whether it was really targeting me personally um but yeah it got really bad especially i mean twitter was pretty bad instagram was really bad i had to talk to instagram and they and both facebook and twitter i think ended up you know saying that they would commit to doing a better job of, of cleaning up their, their networks. Um, and it, it did stop eventually, but it was really bad. I got like, I have a few photos on Instagram that have over a thousand, a thousand comments. Wow. Be- yeah. And it's all people like telling me my mother should die and that I'm a prostitute.
1: <laughs> oh my God. You know, that. <laughs> that's that's exactly what's happening here. I mean, if you speak out against the government and they deploy these armies of trolls I mean these aren't real people they they have a script, they follow the script, they cut and paste it into your into your instagram or twitter and I mean it's really really i mean it's destroyed lives and um, yeah in, in, in a way, i mean i've
0: I've experienced some of it secondhand. I had a friend who years ago during the, you know, the height of the drug war in the Philippines, he wrote a cover story for Time about Duterte. And all I did was, like, congratulate him on his own Facebook page, like, under his post, which I guess was public. And even just doing that, I got, like, a couple messages from Duterte supporters. So, yeah, I've – and I've seen – yeah, it's pretty bad. And I guess it's a global – Thing, right, and and the worst part, of it, it does kind of work, doesn't it?
1: It does work, yeah. It does work. It does work to sort of sway public opinion, mm-hmm. and also sort of basically enrage people towards people like you or whoever speaks out. But you know what I found during this lockdown is that there are real people who now fight the trolls, and because everybody's at home, everybody's online all the time there's actually now more real people speaking out and the voices of the trolls seem to be a little less you know less coming out compared to the real people who you know start commenting on everything <laughs> yeah
0: yeah it's 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 uh discouraging right um but it's it's you know very much a modern problem that i think we're all still figuring out how to deal with.
1: Yeah, for sure. And i saw last year you were i mean you were front and center in all of these protests from pretty much the very beginning. And yeah. some of them looked looked extremely violent. I mean i was looking at your photos and looking at i mean the stuff that was coming out and how dangerous was it? be covering all of these things i mean you were i think you were hit by a a tear gas canister at some point um
0: yeah i probably the closest well i got hit by a brick but it bounced off the ground and i i mean you definitely get hit by tear gas canisters like not i never got a direct hit thankfully but you get you know things that ricochet off things and hit you um I would say it is certainly risky. You're certainly at risk to be injured. And a journalist did lose her eye last year, very sadly. Yeah, it's super messed up. But, um, you know, as far as covering protests and conflicts go globally, which I can't say I have much experience with, um, I don't think it's, it's that dangerous. You know, there's... Live ammunition's only been used maybe a few, a handful of times. Um, and, and no one's, well, one person's been shot. Uh, but other than that, there has, you know, it's not like in Thailand or I think India where you know you stand a very good chance of getting shot during certain periods of unrest. Um, but thankfully hasn't gone that far yet and that's why you know we're not really concerned about the army the chinese army the pla coming anytime soon because the, the hong kong police you know if they wanted to they they could still escalate to that point um mm-hmm. but you know the, the risks are rubber bullets tear gas water cannons which they lace with is very, very painful, like, um, pepper spray, chemical, pepper spray, uh, pepper bullets. Um, and you know, the government, the police has basically escalated as far as they can. And and all of these can be lethal, right? All of these can be lethal when used inappropriately and time and time again, the police have used these methods inappropriately. Um, but, you know, it's you're not covering war. There's not bullets flying around or anything.
1: And coming from Vice News, I mean, Vice News normally it covers sort of not not hard-hitting journalism in the same way as, as what you've been doing over the past year and a half. And it, how is that shift from, you know, Vice News, which covers, like, features? You do a lot of features, right? Feature news.
0: Uh, well, I mean... Vice News, it depends. I mean, Vice is certainly a very large company with a lot of different sections, but I would say Vice News actually does do quite a bit of hard-hitting journalism. It doesn't do breaking news, really, because of the nature of our platforms, but they they cover conflict. They cover the protests. They cover social unrest around the world. So I, I, you know, I didn't do all much of that for them, but um, Vice... I was the only person based in Asia for Vice News, so I, I covered a lot of stories. I covered, you know, I covered the Rohingya refugee crisis. I covered the Bangladesh drug war. I covered the South Korean um, president's um, impeachment. I
1: covered you a- here in the Philippines as well. Yeah, so. I, I went
0: to the Philippines. Um, I covered what did I do in the Philippines? I covered a story about divorce. <laughs>
1: Divorce. Oh, right, or, or or the lack thereof. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> lack of
0: divorce. Um, what was the other story? Did there? So I covered countries in like all over Asia. In you know, and but you know, a lot of it was cultural, maybe kind of silly, but a lot of serious stories. So it it, I'd say the biggest shift for me was you know, advice. I was a producer, whereas being a freelancer I was. Mostly doing photography. Um, I was also writing. I was also doing a lot of work on social media. I was doing TV and radio and hosting a bit. So it, that was probably the biggest shift is was the mediums I was working for and also just focusing on one story in such an in-depth way rather than advice you know flying all over the place and, and parachuting in and, and covering these big stories.
1: And why, why did you choose to sort of leave uh, basically a, a full-time job for freelance journalism work? <laughs> sometimes like- I ask
0: myself that too. Um, you know, like I've lived with my mom <laughs> ever since quitting my full-time job. Because rent in Hong Kong is ridiculously expensive. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I... I just wanted more freedom. I really loved my time at Vice. I learned a lot, um, but it was it was a really stressful job. It's a very high, fast paced job. It, it it was a nightly news show on HBO that we were making, so it's it's it was high stakes in you know as far as the media world goes. Um, but for me, I just felt like I wasn't creatively fulfilled. I think it's easier to say in retrospect, but now I realize, you know, I, as a producer, although it's really cool work, you know, it's very logistical as well. It's a lot of planning. It's, um, which is fine. And I enjoyed that, but it didn't feel creatively fulfilling. I wasn't shooting all that much. I sometimes shot B cam, but you, you know, it, I actually preferred not to, cause I felt like a It couldn't produce as well if I'm also shooting. So it was, you know, it's very much behind the scenes. And and although nothing could happen without a producer, you're not making anything with your own hands, which I missed. You wanted
1: to be in the action, essentially.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I wanted to be shooting. I wanted to be taking photos or writing or doing the interviews. And as a producer, you don't do any of those you, you make everything happen, but you don't actually, you know, do the nitty gritty creative parts. Um, so that I think I missed and, and I'm, you know, it worked out really well for me because I, you know, quit just a few months, well, like half a year before the protests in Hong Kong happened. And I just was really well placed to cover the protests. And if I had been working for Vice, like, there's only so many stories they could do about the Hong Kong protest, right? Because it's an international show for a U.S. audience. As big of a story as it is, I, they wouldn't have wanted the day-in, day-out happenings as, as I was able to cover as a freelancer.
1: And you've, I mean, as a freelancer, you've already been featured in, was it National Geographic, New York Times? Uh, I've seen a couple of other, you know, really big publications put up your work Mm hmm And how how did that feel? Like, you know, was that like something like a vindication for you that you'd made the right choice to to go as a freelancer? And
0: Yeah, totally. I mean (laughs) like, you know, one of the reasons I quit Vice was because, you know, I was doing really well as a producer and they really liked me as a producer, but I, I just felt like there was no more place place to grow and they weren't letting me do things, you know, outside of basically their comfort zone for me, which like for example, I wanted to host more and, and they didn't really want me doing that for whatever reason. And then when I quit, I actually hosted more for Vice after I quit than before. Oh. <laughs> um so that was that was certainly that felt vindicating for sure. Um but yeah, I think I mean it was so much luck, of course. Like, you know, again, having quit, you know, not long before the purchase happened being from Hong Kong, I was just super well placed to cover the protests and, and yeah, and finding all these opportunities that if it weren't for the protests would have probably taken me years to get to. So, you know, it did certainly cement my choice to have, to have gone freelance. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't know how well I would have done if, if I just didn't happen to be in the right place, right time. Um, yeah. it's which is why I had quit. As well, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah it, was, it was just right place, right time.
1: Yeah, being in Hong Kong. And you were basically the international journalist putting out stuff for Hong Kong. I would see your... Your work, even on Philippine websites. Oh really? Um, yeah, I think I've, you're probably on on some of the um, how do you call it those those news wires that distribute oh, yeah. your work, right? And I'm sure a lot of the Philippine news wires would would cover. Um, I mean, would take the work from from all of those, and so I saw I saw your work on on some of that.
0: Yeah, but... it was um, crazy. Just like the reach of of. And being able to reach so many people covering international news story.
1: When we met, you were... I remember, was, was your research when we met in National Geographic? Was it 2015?
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah, we were so we young.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you were younger. And, <laughs> I, mean, I, I remember they didn't serve me a beer. The, <laughs> I, was the oldest, I was the oldest guy there, and they didn't serve me a beer at the, at well. the bar. <laughs> yeah, America, okay. the Asian, Asian, uh, Asian Fountain of Youth. But uh, I remember your, your work was on Hong Kong biodiversity, was it?
0: Yeah, it was. So my Young Explorer Grant was about um, the biodiversity of Hong Kong and how we should, you know, appreciate more and explore more. Um, but so the original project was about crowdsourcing an online database of Hong Kong species, especially endemic ones, but I realized that was just like way too um ambitious. So it just became this like educational project.
1: Right. And and whatever happened to that project, is it is it something that was just I mean, after the after the whole National Geographic grant and and
0: it, it went on for a few years, um, but it was really hard. You know, I it never became what I really hoped it would become. It was just me, the money. Like you know, it's five thousand so dollars. It doesn't really last all that long, or it doesn't you know it doesn't allow you to like grow a, a project into a self sustaining thing. So that was probably yeah. one big lesson I learned was like I shouldn't have done this open ended project. Like I should have just you know, made it much more discreet and with an end date. But I mean, I I did a few talks and, you know, a few trips and expeditions and and stuff like that. And I still give talks sometimes, but um, it's not so much an active project, though I still would love for it to be in it. And I still like make attempts sometimes to revive it, but it's so hard as as an individual and as, as a freelancer and, you know, before that I was in a full-time job and at one point, you know, I was training for the rugby world cup. So it was really not happening, but you know, that's why I've always really admired you and your, your work and how you've really got this big project off the ground into what seems like a self-sustaining or you know still existing um, NGO. It,
1: it took years.
0: <laughs> it yeah. That's like so a, inspirational. That,
1: that, that came up uh, automatically but it did take like a few years before we actually got it you know self sustaining and you know yeah and, and and
0: and it. And, to- and that's why I admire so much because i i realize the commitment and perseverance and hard work it must have taken to to get to that point
1: yeah but um, i have to say though that uh, being i mean even just that small grant from national geographic gave us the, I would say the leverage to be able to do what we do now. I mean, to this day, it's still probably the first stepping stone that allowed us to, you know, move for, get the ball rolling and gave us the credibility that, you know, companies and, and people uh, started to trust us with, with the work that we do. So I, I don't know if that's the same for you. Like, did being part of National Geographic give you that type of uh, of I mean, added value?
0: Yeah, um, I think it was a huge opportunity for me just to have that name um, and to have yeah, just have the having the Nat Geo name behind you is huge, and having the door open a Nat Geo to you and being part of the community and. It, I think the greatest thing about getting the grant and becoming part of the family was being able to meet people like you, right? And going to those meetups, like that Young Explorer meetup in 2015. It, like being, like I now, you know, we've known each other for five years now and so many people I've known since mm-hmm. my early, mid-20s. and And it's had a huge influence on me because you have this, family of people you can that, that inspire you most importantly who push you just by virtue of their like excellence and amazingness and who um are there for you and support you and and who are all trying to do different really cool things so I think for me that was really what was most um valuable to me though professionally speaking for sure having the nacho name open so many doors and even just getting people to answer cold emails right like having that title (laughs) is is huge even though no one knows what it means and they always end up calling me something i'm not like a nacho photographer or whatever um it definitely opens doors and for that i'm very grateful
1: but definitely what you just said about having this whole network of sort of like-minded people doing so many different interesting things and being you know being good at what they're doing you know just the group of people we were with in twenty fifteen and everybody started with the same you know the same grant money five thousand dollars <laughs> um, yeah and it's like you said it's not really a lot of money to do stuff but everybody there did such amazing things and and still are doing such amazing things. They they everybody sort of built on that and sort of rolled it over and and started building their own I mean their own little niche and you know we have people who deal with frogs in the Amazon or or um, indigenous tribes in Canada and, you know it, it's such a diverse group and I think that there's so much value to that.
0: Totally. It it's been such a godsend really just knowing that there's people out there who are also trying to do these unique different things and and how we're you know not alone
1: (laughs) yeah at some point like doing all of these things there is that feeling of being alone i mean in, in any country i'm sure you know like if you're in hong kong or the philippines and you have this crazy idea that no one else is thinking about and then but then there's this big group, this bigger group now, which you're a part of, and that sort of makes you feel like you're part of this bigger community.
0: Yeah, totally. And that is really important because I think when you do something, even just a little bit non traditional, it's it's it can feel pretty lonely and and knowing and see, being able to grow with this community over time in your in your 20s too when you're really just starting to figure out what you want to do i think is is so important it was really important for me
1: yeah you know for me some um, i mean it's meeting all of you in 2015 was really like that for me was really amazing because when i first applied for the grant in 2005 they didn't have the young explorer category uh, <laughs> And you know, they they essentially made the category because because I applied when I was twenty three or something like that. And and you know, seeing how it's grown and how everybody there has is doing such amazing things. And now all over Asia. At the time when I applied I was the only Asian <laughs> who was there. And you know, some some guy who's not even from Manila, you know, I'm from I'm from Baguio City, which is not the, not <laughs> Traditionally, the place where these kinds of people come from and seeing everyone from all over the world, you know, uh, India, Hong Kong, uh, everywhere, essentially doing all of these amazing things was, was for me, like something really, really special.
0: Yeah, totally. And the grant doesn't even exist anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But they are giving a lot of different grants now for National Geographic. And yeah, I don't know how. Um,
0: I, heard, a, a, um, I heard it's a lot easier to get now. There's a lot of now.
1: Filipinos <laughs> now that are applying for it this Oh, year. that's great.
0: Yeah. I know there's even like a Filipino like community, right, of explorers.
1: Yeah, there's about 17 now, I think. Uh, if I'm, yeah, not that's I'm great. part of a WhatsApp group that, that's. You know, they they chat there quite a bit. I'm not so active, but but definitely there's a lot of them. Uh really talented young people. I mean there's scientists there, there's photographers, uh they've been doing amazing things. And they've been working with people from all over. They uh one of them worked with Sarah. I don't know if you remember Sarah. She
0: Sarah she who the, uh
1: Sarah her project was the Planets, I think.
0: Oh, Camnazio.
1: Yes, yes, Sarah Camnazio. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She was here last year. We didn't get to meet, but they they shot a three D. Uh, they went to Apo Reef. They did a dive and they shot a three D video of the whole reef, and they made it into like this learning tool for kids in the in along the seashore areas who. Surprisingly, all of these kids, you know, a lot of them live by the sea, but have never seen what is under the sea. Mm. So just by showing them, you know, showing them what was there, created, you know, conservationists out of these young children that they showed the video to. They had these 3D goggles and everything.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, the, the stuff that people do, like, I don't think... I would have realized what was even possible for my career had I not seen this community of Nacho explorers do their thing like I honestly would have not even known that it's possible to make a living or or do these things with your life so I'm I'm again I'm I'm just really happy that I've been able to see everyone's work and and it is just continuously inspiring though I mean like to be honest I don't know if you've ever felt this but at the same time it's super intimidating and And sometimes, like, I feel really insecure about, like, you know, basically imposter syndrome, right? Like, I don't know. Oh, yeah, for sure. All the time. All the time. Oh, my gosh. Like, I remember that first time, like, that first day at the Young Explorers meetup. I was like, I am the dumbest person in this room. Like
1: Yeah, <laughs> everybody's was, like I was just, as yeah. a PhD. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah.
0: And they're like, yeah, I'm a volcanologist or I'm a submarine pilot. Like what? <laughs> I didn't even know yeah, that was possible.
1: Yeah, but you know, that's 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 the beauty of being part of that group. There's there's so many different people doing amazing things and and they're all sort of so passionate about it, you know you, you still see them on 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 their own social media, and everybody is passionate about the work that they're they're doing you know it's not like it's a job that they just like roll through that everything, but you know you see it under everybody's social media feed and and they talk about it all the time. There's really this passion that it's more than just a job for them totally, totally.
0: everyone's trying to do. Something really meaningful.
1: Yeah, and for us Asians, I think it's also something. You know how Asians? I mean, especially like for you, you you're in you're Canadian Asian, right? Like, a, yeah, I'm I mean, Canadian,
0: exactly. And a lot
1: of Asians sort of tend to go the traditional route. You know, you have to be a doctor, lawyer. Uh, <laughs> In, the, in that sense, you know, you, you have this career path and your parents sort of drive you towards those career paths. And, mm-hmm. and and then seeing all of these amazing people doing amazing things just opens up your mind to, oh, you know, this type of career is actually possible. I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful that my parents allowed me to do all of the crazy stuff I've done over the years. And it's, you know, it's given me that freedom to be who I am now. But that's not common for a lot of asians i would say um
0: no for sure i mean but yeah my parents I'm, I'm lucky they were pretty um hands-off i would say you know they just supported me when whatever i did even though they didn't really quite understand it or know what i did um but uh yeah i think you know already you feel quite alone when when you're trying to do something different but i think you're right like when you try to do something different in asia you feel especially alone Especially there's, when you know, Nat Geo World has traditionally, historically, been dominated by like white dudes, right? So to, to definitely,
1: be, yes. yeah,
0: <laughs> for sure,
1: white men in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, not, now mm-hmm. there's there's a bit more parity. There's a bit more women, I think, um, especially with the with the grants and everything. I mean, here in the Philippines, I think there's actually more women explorers than men.
0: Oh, that's um, great.
1: And some of them have done really, really well for themselves. I mean, Hannah Reyes, uh, one of them, just won an award a couple of days ago, I think.
0: Yeah, oh. she's amazing. I talk to her like every day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, her stuff is her photography is really, really amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, she's incredible for sure. Um, and you know, one thing that they talk about in Atio is is uh, the importance of having not necessarily not necessarily role models, but peer models. You know, people who are friends. Who inspire you, and, and Hannah is definitely one of the, all of the
1: explorers
0: for me are, are, are peer models,
1: right? And I saw, like, I saw, I saw you post something about your family years ago. Um, you make hot sauce, was it? Is that like a family <laughs> business?
0: Um, yeah. yeah, since it my dad runs the business now, but my grandfather started a traditional sauce company in Hong Kong in, like, gosh, I don't even know, a long time ago. Is it like
1: a Sri Racha, something like that?
0: Yeah, except it's, you know, not a giant empire, and I'm not an heiress to a giant sauce empire, unfortunately. But it was, yeah, it was founded by my grandfather in
1: 1938.
0: Wow. Yeah and uh so it's a family business that's very old and and goes a long way and and it's um uh yeah traditional sauces it's real good I should send you some um yeah and I'm actually hoping to make a documentary about it one day just a short doc so you you've revitalized that idea I should do that sooner than I later. Think
1: now is the time, you know, it's a slow global slowdown. Everybody's slow. Yeah, down. that's Everybody true. has time. Yeah,
0: I except mean, for, you for the protests.
1: more time now. Yeah.
0: yeah, but the protests are, uh, I mean, I can't leave that's Hong right. Kong anymore, but plenty going on in Hong
1: Kong. And your siblings also work in this company, or is it? no
0: no it's just my dad i do have two half brothers who helped to run it but um i'm we're not really involved uh but um i would like to be more involved one day but i'm not really uh i mean i think you know business as a concept is interesting to me but i've never just wanted to be you know a business person which is what this would be
1: well you're more a journalist i would say Mm yeah and um as a journalist, you've covered a lot of things. You know, you went to Bangladesh and and all of these places. If there is like one story that's really sort of stands out for you, is there is there a story that stands out for you that you've done?
0: Um, I mean, besides the Hong Kong protest. Yeah, besides the
1: Hong Kong protest. I, I would. Mean, that's close say, to all for you, I would
0: say. Yeah, very much so. Um. For Vice, I did this documentary about migrant workers going home for Chinese New Year. And me with this whole big team of people, um, I was really just one of many people working on this. We followed this couple who work in Shenzhen, which is not far from here. And we followed them all the way home to their rural, rural village in Sichuan. Um, a province where Chengdu is, all the pandas are. And it was just um, a very beautiful story. It was very beautifully shot. And, and the family really let us into their lives. I mean, they basically just tolerated us. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we saw how the couple lived in Shenzhen, how they lived in a small place far from their kids. And then we followed their super long, like, two-day journey home by train and car and taxi and foot. Even they walked like to last like 45 minutes of it. Um, And we went to the village before the couple got there and we met the kids who were being raised by the grandfather. And they're quite there. It's like a, it's like a seven year old or something. And, and a 16 year old, I forget how old the kids were small, like young. Um, You know, so we saw how they live their lives. Before the, the couple got home, how they were preparing for Chinese New Year, we caught the reunion and, and just the, the difficult and cap, we tried to capture you know the, the pain and hardship that these people go through. And it's not a unique story because Chinese New Year is the largest human migration. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of millions of people travel to get home, and a lot of them are migrant workers who only see their kids once or twice a year. And we were there for the one time a year they get to see their kids. So it was a really special story. And and the way it came together was just so beautiful. And I think everyone who was part of that was super proud to have made something so touching. and, And that also tells you something about, you know, that put a human face on this huge migration. I think it's hard sometimes to put a human face on China to the outside world because of the way it's portrayed. And I think we managed to do that. And it was in large part because most of the crew was Chinese. Um, I, you know, I was one of the producers. My colleague on the ground, she's mainland Chinese. Um, One of our shooters was Chinese. The other two shooters were were foreign, but they both speak Chinese fluently. Um, So I think that helped a lot, just having that people with a lot of local knowledge working on it.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. And I, I think that's something that would resonate with not only in China and but places like the Philippines and, and probably yeah. most of Southeast Asia, which has a lot of migrant workers, you know. We have migrant yeah. workers. I mean in Hong Kong every Sunday you see migrant work Filipinos For uh, sure. outside, right? I They're mean, like a, um... the
0: backbone of like the Hong Kong economy. Um you know, I was thinking about I wrote this story about um, you know, this newspaper commissioned me to write a story about how Hong Kong avoided outbreaks in its care homes compared to like the UK where, you know, so many people died in, in residential care homes for the elderly, same with the US. And while I think Hong Kong definitely did an excellent job of preventing that, I think one of the things that really helped Hong Kong was the fact that so many elderly live at home rather than in care homes. And that is mostly only made possible because of the, the overse the domestic workers who who work and take care of them in Hong Kong. And and many of them, probably about half of them are Filipino. The other half are, are Indonesian. And so like these workers basically make it possible for all these people to, to live at home and, and, not burden, you know, create more elderly homes and, and so the role they play in Hong Kong society is truly not recognized enough. It's a it's a for huge sure. shame.
1: They don't even get like resident visas, I think.
0: Oh yeah, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. I mean, so you can you can in Hong Kong if you work for live here for seven years, you become a permanent resident. Unless you're a domestic worker, in which case you can live here for 30 years. But if you lose your job, you have to find a new one within two weeks or you have to leave. It's disgusting. That's
1: horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. And I, I actually read this article where because of the domestic helpers in Hong Kong, there's Hong Kong is basically doubling its economy because you know if, if two parents can work in a household, they're they're earning two incomes as opposed to if it was just one parent working and one parent taking care of the children.
0: Exactly. Uh, That's why I say they're the hidden
1: backbone of this economy because
0: this society could not function, were not subsidized by extremely cheap labor. Um, And it's terrible the way that they're treated in return for that. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically, you know, the Hong Kong government taking advantage of, of people being willing to work for less and, and, and the Hong Kong government's absolutely failed to provide adequate protection to these people. And that's why... Um, which country is it? For a while, they banned their own workers from going to Hong Kong, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah
1: we can probably do that as a negotiating tactic. Yeah. Indebted to China.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Totally. Totally.
1: Well, um, I think this is really, really good conversation. Thank you so much, Laurel. Um, I just have a few last questions which I ask everybody. Is there like a book that you're currently reading or would like to recommend to people?
0: Well, the book I'm currently reading... I'm listening to one and reading another. Um, I'm reading, uh, I don't even know the title. It was really long, but it's a history of ancient civilizations. It's really interesting to just, I'm just trying to brush up on my history and understand the world better and that gives a really nice overview of, like, the beginning of human civilization and I'm, I'm at, like, think we're at like 100 bc now but it starts at like 6000 bc wow it's it's surprisingly interesting and very well written considering how much it covers um and i'm not someone who is a history buff and that's why i'm reading it but it's interesting enough for me um so that's good if anyone wants to learn about ancient civilizations (laughs) um i'm also listening to between the world and me by ta-nehisi Coates. i just started that Um, also trying to, uh, understand race and colonialism better. I think it'll help me, you know, I think studying the works of African-American thinkers and writers will help me articulate the social problems that I see here in Asia, which I'm sure will resonate with you. We're both from colonies, ex-colonies, um, and then a recent book I read, which I highly recommend, is Outlaw Ocean by Ian Urbina, who I guess is actually also a nature explorer, although oh, that's like right. very, very far down his list of accolades. <laughs> um, he, I mean, he was like a New York Times reporter who took time off to do his project. And it's a book um, with four years worth of reporting all around the world about what happens in international waters and all the legal things that happen in international waters, a lot of it is in the Philippines, I think. Because you know,
1: wow, That's the, the Philippines. I'll probably be having to read.
0: Yeah, you should definitely read. It. It's so fascinating. I mean, there's there's like everything in this book. There's pirates. There's, you know, there's illegal fishing. There's like cross planetary races, um, because like at one point he's on this boat. I think the Sea Shepherd.
1: Oh, the Sea Shepherd. Okay. I know yeah.
0: that. Yeah. Um, but I mean the Sea Shepherd Organization. Mm-hmm. Um, chasing, you know, illegal fishermen like across Antarctica. Like it's it's um an incredibly reported book and it's really well written and fascinating, super eye opening, and you know, I didn't know how bad it was out there <laughs> on the ocean, which of course is affects all of us and and
1: is is which we need to protect. So I would, I would. The unseen world for most of us living on land.
0: Yeah. And even for us who do, who are involved in the oceans, you know, usually we only really are on the coast, right? Even if we go diving and you see corals, but gosh, like the tales of like sea slavery and, and, and just how hard it is to, to um, enforce illegal international law and, and just all the human rights, environmental abuses that happen on the ocean because no one is enforcing or regulating the laws and sometimes it's just straight up legal because of how murky laws out there it's an incredible read and I highly recommend it
1: all right thank you so much well thank you laurel for for your time i mean this has been an amazing hour talking to you and reconnecting
0: yeah thanks for having me
1: and that was laurel Chore for a country like the Philippines, who in the last three years has made a pivot to China. Hong Kong is a lesson in how the Chinese government treats those who do not follow its whims. Lots of insights from this discussion, and I can only hope as someone who values democracy that the world takes notice of what is happening today in Hong Kong and the erosion of human rights and hard fought freedoms for all of us. If this is what it does to those it considers part of its territory, you can only guess what it will do for the rest of us. If you enjoyed this episode of the Wildcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a rating, and sharing it with your networks. This will go a long way towards helping us continue producing the stories we tell on this meeting. Next week on The Wildcast, an amazing story of wildlife conservation in a war zone with my friend and inspiration, Kurdish conservation warrior Hana Raza from Iraqi Kurdistan.